You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals' employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. Welcome to the C-19 Podcast. I'm Itai Orr. Hi, I'm Ben Reese. Hi, I'm Sari Altruler. Hi there, this is Ellen Samuels. And we're here to talk about the intersection of disability and 19th century American studies. Ellen Samuels is Associate Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of the book Fantasies of Identification, Disability, Gender, Race. She is currently working on two new books, Double Meanings, Representing Conjoined Twins, and Bodies of Mine, a Memoir in Genetic Sequence. Sari Altschuler is Assistant Professor of English at Northeastern University and Associate Director of the Northeastern Humanities Center. Her book, The Medical Imagination, Literature and Health in the Early United States, was just published by the University of Pennsylvania Press this year. Finally, Benjamin Reese, professor of English at Emory University, is the author of three books, The Showman and the Slave, Race, Death, and Memory in Barnum's America, Theaters of Madness, Insane Asylums in 19th Century American Culture, and most recently, Wild Nights, How Taming Sleep Created Our Restless World. My main goal for this conversation is to introduce listeners to the exciting insights being developed at the intersection of disability and 19th century American studies. In your work, each of you has drawn important connections between stories that we are used to hearing about the 19th century, whether it's escaping from slavery, the development of a uniquely American literary renaissance, or the evolution of 19th century science, and concepts that fall under the umbrella of disability today. Disability, it seems, is actually central to American culture. So let's start there. How has focusing on disability affected the way you understand 19th century American culture? Um, Thank you so much. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. And I think that's really such an important question to ask because while disability studies has certainly come a long way since I first um, began working in it um, when I was a graduate student in, um, well, I started graduate school in 1999, so you can do the math. Um, I still, you know, I feel like it still has not yet been integrated into 19th century American literary studies um, as centrally as um, race or gender um, have been. And there's, and yet I think it absolutely plays a similar role. We wouldn't imagine at this point reading Huck Finn um, without thinking about race. We, we don't read Walt Whitman without thinking about sexuality. Um, but we will still, for example, read Moby Dick without thinking about disability, right? And yet, on just the most basic and, and literal level, it is a story about disability, right? Um, it is a story about Ahab's um, loss of his leg and his how that shaped his character and his narrative. And um, as many brilliant scholars, uh, Samuel Otter uh, and others have pointed out, it is very much a story about bodies uh, on many different levels. Um, The body of the nation, the body of the whale, the body of the sailors. Um, And when I was um, 
encountering disability studies, I had the epiphany that most of us have that once you start noticing it as a socially constructed um, and uh, resonant category of representation in both lived experience, history, and literature, that it's everywhere. It's simply everywhere. You simply cannot talk about American history or culture or literature without noticing it. Yeah, I just wanted to echo, I mean, I think what Ellen said was really uh, beautiful. And um, and I have to say, you know, her work has been really influential for me for thinking about um, how to think about disability in the 19th century. I think for the sake of the conversation, um, I'm going to play the early uh, 19th centuryist, um, I, I, since my work really um, starts in the 18th century. And so I think my perspective might be a bit different. Um, one of the things that... Uh, that I really struggled with at first when I was coming to disability studies um, was thinking about the absence of um, representations of disability in the early period. I was really excited by the questions that disability studies had, you know, had to ask, but I saw a real, a real lack of representation um, of disability in early works, and and I was puzzled by that. Um, and so one of the first things that I did was to try to figure out how and why that was, and then how disability sort of entered um, literary representation, um, thinking about sort of, especially in early US novels. Um, and, you know, one of the things that that did for me in terms of thinking about the centrality of disability to American culture was not to say disability was unimportant to American culture, but rather to say that I think in the early, um, especially in the early period, we have a real opportunity to see how modern forms of disability um, came to be and the kind of struggles, especially the kind of representational struggles and questions um, that are being worked out from kind of the 1790s to um, the War of 1812, and then moving into the kind of representation that Ellen is talking about um, in terms of works like Moby Dick and other uh, works that I think we often associate in, in disability studies as being very representational of the field. Um, and so uh, that, that was part of my entry. I have to say that also like Ellen, um, when I started asking these questions, I uh, I didn't know anyone else who was an early Americanist who was thinking about some of these questions. And so I was both really excited by how much there was to kind of think about um, and also really daunted by the fact that uh, that it wasn't a conversation that I saw happening at the conferences that I was going to. And that, I mean, I really think I started thinking about um, these kinds of questions around 2008. One of the things that's been so wonderful is to see how much disability work has been happening um, at conferences like C19, especially how much it's picked up in the last 10 years. Um, and I think part of that is has to do with what Ellen was saying about um, how once you start thinking about questions of disability, it's kind of hard to stop thinking about them. Um, and you begin to see all of the different ways in which questions about ability and disability are central to American culture. So I wanted to ask, since you mentioned the moment when you were really interested in disability studies questions for the first time, what what are those questions? What drew you to the field in the first place? Yeah, uh, so 
I was working on this project about literature and medicine, and I thought there's a whole field that is um, really critical of, uh, you know, questions that come from a medical perspective and, and really interrogates that perspective. And so I was interested in thinking in, in learning more about what disability studies had to say um, about the field of medicine. But also once I got, once I started to learn a bit about disability studies, I started to think about all kinds of things I hadn't thought about before. So, you know, one of the first questions that occurred to me was I was, um, I remember taking a class on religion in the 19th century and, and um, reading a lot about the Second Great Awakening and thinking about well, what happened to this enormous deaf community that um, that was being formed at the very same time? And how did the Second Great Awakening fit in, both fit in with, because it, it in fact inspired um, uh, a lot, the schools for the deaf, but also how, how did, you know, how did it also speak back to um, questions about the transparency of things like oratory? Um, and I think that as an early Americanist, um, people who work in the early part of the 19th century uh, have spoken quite a bit about um, about the centrality of oratory and the centrality um, of of the spoken word to um, the transmission of information and knowledge and nation formation. And I just thought, I I wondered why I had not read anything about um, the part that the deaf community played um, in in kind of shaping those early ideas. Sticking with this question about how disability plays an important role in the early formation of American culture, let's turn to you, Ben. Yeah, I think the 19th century is a really fascinating period to study in terms of disability history and the development of um, dis what we might call disability cultures. And um, Sari, who mentioned the article that she wrote, a really powerful article about the... the um, relative lack of disability representation in the early American novel, when you look in the, in the, by the mid-19th century and certainly going into the late 19th uh, turn of the 20th century, um, disability is really everywhere. And I think that that in part corresponds to a new kind of cultural salience for disability in, in the society at large. And there's a number of um, factors that are driving the, the the visibility, the cultural preoccupation with different forms of embodiment and enmindment. Um, first, you have, you know, industrialization and the new kinds of um, uh, risks to life and limb that were posed by heavy machinery and then heavy artillery in, in, uh, in the Civil War. So there was a, a kind of mass production of maimed bodies or, or debility um, on a scale that that hadn't hadn't really been seen before, um, bodies different kinds of bodies were circulating and being brought out into the open in ways that that made made disability um, I think more visible perhaps on a on a larger scale than than it had been. There's a really interesting new book coming out by Dennis Tyler called um, Disabilities of Color that traces. The, the sort of risks that racialized bodies had for uh, being impaired and, and the conflation of, of um, disability and race across the 19th century. But then, you know, as a response to um, the new kind of cultural problems posed by, by 
new forms of, of work and expectations for, for body management and, and regularization. Specialized institutions caring for people with different kinds of disability, different forms of disability, um, emerged. And these were spaces that were, you know, they were, they were caught up in the moral reform movement of the mid-19th century and in an ethos of, um, of, of cure and recuperation of, of people who, who had been judged abnormal in one way or another. These were also often spaces of cultural expression, and I wrote about this um, in Theaters of Madness, that the voices of people um, who, were, who were institutionalized in the 19th century came into broad circulation through, through journals, through different kinds of life writing, through clinical stick case studies that, that, that circulated in new kinds of journals that were devoted to, to uh, um, uh, different disabled conditions. Um, and so you really had a proliferation of discourse around disability um, uh, across the 19th century. So, um, you know, so there were a lot of uh, social factors in play that both produced an intense awareness of disability and then that generated discourse and writing around it. And we can see that reflected or soaked up in a lot of the canonical literature of the period. The 19th century seems to be a moment or a, a whole period of possibility. And at the same time, it's also a, a period that you can imagine leading up to eugenics. So, um, so I see both. I see in, in all of your work both this uh, kind of embrace of the 19th century cultural sphere as, a, as an area of experimentation, slippages, um, and potential uh, alternate formulations of disability and ability, and at the same time um, a period during which um, disability came into more, more uh, clear focus as a, as a category and as an identity. So I'm wondering... Um, Sort of, if that's an accurate description of what you're, uh, of what you see in the 19th century, and how you manage uh, to balance all three of you, how you manage to balance those two those two sides, both the kind of regulatory, oppressive Foucauldian story on the one hand, and at the other side of things, kind of a, a proliferation of different ideas and forms that are no longer with us in a way. Yeah, if I might, um, <clears throat> I think that really uh, both. Both are true, right? I mean, it really was a period of um, surveillance and quarantine and regularization uh, and a, a kind of curative ideology that ultimately um, led to the eugenics movement, a sort of purification of the of the body politic of defective members. And we can see um, so powerfully in the literature of, of naturalism in the in the toward the end of the 19th century. Um, but at the same time, it was also a, a, a period um, before all that. And I think there's a danger of, of looking at disability history in the 19th century um, as a matter of all re roads leading toward eugenics. There, were, there, there, was, there was some utopian feeling. Um, there were, there were um, sort of seeds of cross-disability consciousness that came out of the um, shared experiences of institutionalization and the development of specialized schools um, that, that I think did lay some groundwork for um, later more politically conscious movements of um, community building in the, in the latter part of the 20th century. You can look back to the, to the 
middle of the 19th century and start to see disabled people starting to recognize that they're not that they're not alone um, that that there are others who share their experience even if they have a very different kind of um, relation to disability um, and and from from one another so um, so I think I think we have to hold both polarities in mind at once to um, to look at cultural expression from that period. I wanted to echo, um, I think uh, what Ben is saying is absolutely right. And um, just to kind of highlight a bit that um, that certainly there is a kind of paternalistic or sometimes sentimental um, tinge to the work that's being done uh, for individuals with um, particular kinds of impairments. But at the same time, I think that that work actually makes possible, as Ben's work shows so well, um, new kinds of community and identification. And and I think absolutely there's a danger in saying, and then that's, you know, institutionalization in a kind of really negative way. I think there are also obviously really positive um, aspects to, uh, for example, um, you know, individuals with visual impairments or auditory impairments being brought into new kinds of communities, even as those communities obviously um, are being governed in part by, you know, paternalistic um, and sometimes damaging um, assumptions. And and one thing that I think is kind of interesting and, um, and important to remember is that the reason why people are creating these kinds of communities is because they believe in a kind of radical malleability or a sort of human potential. Um, and they're looking for, there's a new attention to people with particular kinds of impairments that absolutely, on one hand, is headed, you know, can be seen as headed toward um, eugenics, or at the very least, a kind of Foucauldian disciplining. But on the other hand, um, and I'm thinking here of somebody like Laura Bridgman, um, who's the first uh, deafblind student to be um, taught to communicate, um, at least uh, that, that's the way that she's touted by Samuel Gridley Howe, who, who does that work. And there's a lot of interest um, in helping her develop as a person and in thinking about questions about humanity through her. And of course, there's an exploitative aspect to that, and I, I don't want to underplay that. But on the other hand, it made possible a whole host of kind of technological and communication innovations that at least for a while, I think, really enriched her world personally um, and made possible things that wouldn't have been possible for her otherwise. Um, and so I think your question is absolutely right. And it's great to, um, and really important to think about those tensions um, and, and to hold that difficulty um, together at, as we undertake the work. Well, I mean, I agree completely with what um, both Ben and Sari have said, and I would add, I guess, just to be a little bit of a, a Foucauldian here, that, you know, all, all of this is also Foucauldian. Like, we often focus so much on, you know, the disciplinary uh, and the discipline disciplining uh, aspects of, of Foucault's um, ideas that we can miss or forget the extent to which he also talked about exactly this process, right, in History of Sexuality Part 1, when he talks about um, the repressive hypothesis, and he talks about, um, you know, this new um, medicalization, pathologization, and 
and disciplining of sexuality, he then points out that there is also the perverse implantation. There is also the discursive generation of um, naming different kinds of sexual identities such that now people have names for who they are and thus can form communities. Um, you know, once you name the homosexual, then the homosexuals can start getting together and having dance parties, right? So similarly, I, I think this is very much the same process in many ways. And it, with disabled people, I mean, particularly with different um, institutions, I mean, literal institutions, right? Asylum, schools for the deaf and blind, um, that brought together um, individuals with impairments who had pri previously, you know, existed within their local communities or, you know, uh, not been allowed to exist within their local communities to bring them together. I think one could argue to some extent what some of these institutions did for both good and ill is take individual people with impairments and bring them together and make them disabled people, right? In the sense that disability is socially constructed and that those, those communities even within what, of course, we can recognize as the often um, repressive and and disciplinary context of institutions, did form these communities, which then could start developing, you know, the early um, disability rights movements, like the League for the Physically Handicapped, which Paul Longmore wrote about. So I think that's what's very difficult, just to jump into the present day in 2018. Um, it's difficult for us to think about disability justice organizing sometimes because we are at once fighting, you know, for example, the independent living movement for the right to live outside of institutions um, and all the ways that institutions are dehumanizing and prevent people from being full uh, citizens and full social um, beings in our world. And yet to also know that to some extent those institutions are what enabled such a thing as a disability rights movement in the first place. I'm actually really glad that you brought up uh, present day issues, Ellen, because my next question is sort of how does this research that's so focused on the 19th century pertain to current and live issues uh, within disability studies, but also in the disability rights movement in general? Yeah, well, I was actually just going to say that in general, I mean, I think this is the exciting part about doing historical work, um, is that when you reach back, and I think, for me, the late 18th and early 19th century are so exciting and generative, in part because um, a lot of these ideas are being worked out, and they're kind of inchoate. And and the contemporary power of that um, inchoateness is actually, I think, in suggesting that the world might have been built differently. It was, you know, we know the way that the world ended up being built, but when you reach back um, to think about the formation of modern concepts like disability, um, you see actually, uh, you know, people playing with alternate ideas um, and and kind of grappling with things um, that end up kind of being codified, um, but were not in that early period. And I think that there's a lot of political power in realizing that the world once was and could again be built differently. Um, and so for me, that's, I think, the real driving um, force of kind of looking back and thinking about um, these kinds of questions. I've been working on this project um, 
with uh, David Weimer um, at the Harvard Libraries, and and Ben has been actually a really wonderful um, advisor on it. And it's a it's a kind of public humanities project that uses disability history to kind of rethink questions in the present. So I'm just so insofar as it's a I think a good example of the kind of work that um, reaching back into the past can do for thinking about the present. Um, and the, the project's called uh, Touch This Page, Making Sense of the Ways We Read. And one of the things that we've been interested in doing is um, thinking about how to reproduce tactility digitally. And so we're 3D printing um, historical materials from blind education in the 19th century and using them to ask um, visitors more broadly to think about the ways in which all reading is a kind of multi-sensory act for the most part. Um, and so we often think about reading as incredibly visual, but how can we use these objects that were often printed actually in Roman letters, not not in Braille? Um, so how can we use these objects that were designed to be kind of universally accessible to rethink, to both to think about different reading practices in the past and also to think about how we might reimagine our own um, reading practices and reading cultures in the um, in the present and the ways in which tactility and auditory aspects of reading, in fact, are still part of the ways that we read, but not in ways that we maybe recognize um, so often. So I, I mean, I, I think, in some ways, that's the sort of power um, and real promise um, of historical study. Yeah, I want to go back to something that Ellen said at the opening of this conversation about the, um, the 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 revelatory moment many of us have when we realize that we'd been looking at, thinking about, seeing, experiencing, encountering disability all along without quite realizing it in um, returning to the literature of the 19th century. <clears throat> and um, I think in a way... It's not a. There's not a direct application of that, that startled realization to contemporary advocacy and activist uh, endeavors. But a lot of the best scholarship, including I think Ellen's and Sari's on disability in the 19th century, is to treat disability um, as a way of of knowing something, a way of a way of experiencing and encountering the world that expands our sense of what's possible. And when we return to even some of these hyper-classic texts of the 19th century, um, looking through or feeling through or sensing our way through a disabled sensibility on on the world, um, we begin to see disability as a resource. And I, you know, since we started the conversation with Moby Dick, I've been teaching Moby Dick this past week and, and uh, to undergraduates, and I've thought a lot about disability in Moby Dick, but I never really noticed the fact that Ahab, um, when he is uh, walking across the, the deck of the Pequod, has carved little notches to perfectly fit the, the, the point of his prosthetic leg so that when he, when he, when he moves about, he's always, he's always quite stable. And there's something incredibly ingenious about that. Um, my colleague Rosemary Garland Thompson, who's really one of the pioneers and still leading lights of um, disability studies, talks about um, disability's relation to creativity, that um, disability often impels uh, 
uh, innovations in the in the built environment. Um, you know, we can all see this on the the kinds of apps that are common on our cell phones um, uh, that may have been, um, you know, voice recognition software that may have been um, developed for people with low vision or blind people um, that now become u- ubiquitous and a tool and a resource for all of us. And and <clears throat> when you when you look back at writing of the 19th century and think about disabled characters or writers who identify as disabled, you, you think about them as, as people who have not just different bodies or different brains, but different ways of knowing and apprehending the world, um, you, you really get an, ex- an expansion of your sense not only of the period, but of, of human possibility. Thank you so much for that. I think that's actually very well put. So given this incredible potential, where do you think the field of pre-1900 disability studies is headed to next? Uh, where has it been and where is it headed? Well, I've spent a, I spent a lot of time with institutional records as a way of getting at um, disability life stories in the 19th century. And these records um, are, you know, a massive literature of their own. They're, they're um, annual reports of asylums and schools. They're um, professional journals kept by um, uh, physicians and, and specialists in, in different kinds of uh, uh, disability-related um, caregiving professions. Um, there are journals put out by uh, uh by what today would be called clients of these institutions, although I hate that word. It's, it seems like such a euphemism. But um, as a field, literary studies, one of the really intriguing interpretive possibilities in literary studies today is in quantitative modes of analysis that, that are driven by big data. And um, I think when you start to confront the institutional literature around disability, you're, it's almost impossible to get a representative sample um, across such a huge range of proliferating institutions in the 19th century. And I think that um, that distant reading or big data analyses um, m- might be a useful tool to start to identify um, patterns of discourse and experience that range across these widely disparate uh, institutions and locations of disability. So that's one thing that I think uh, we just haven't seen yet. And I'm, you know, I'm going to both agree and disagree, I think, with Ben here. In terms of being on the same page, I think that there's a great deal uh, of work, uh, exciting work to be done in the digital humanities in um, in both 19th century literary studies and disability studies and and the two of them together. And one example um, I've been thinking about related to my current project, um, but actually a piece of it that I published quite a while ago in 2011 on Millie and Christine McCoy, uh, conjoined twins, and that's the first chapter also of my book, Double Meanings, that I'm working on now, is the way that these images of Millie and Christine McCoy, who were conjoined twins, born uh, enslaved in 1851 um, and exhibited for much of their lives, uh, starting when they were very young children, um, is that there are these images of them taken without their consent, is that 
those images exactly because they're not protected by copyright that get circulated on the internet in this incredibly proliferative um, and almost unstoppable way. And so you have this 19th century, um, you know, artifact in which all these issues of race and gender and enslavement and power and disability and enfreakment and medicalization come together that we can't just talk about in the context of 1871, right? We have to talk about it in the context of 2018 when those that artifact is all over the Google, right? And thinking about that, uh, about how disability in 19th century America has become interestingly like reified and capitalized and digitized in the 21st century, I think is a really interesting area um, of, of inquiry. And then to go in a different direction from Ben, um, I actually think that there's a great deal to be done still in close reading of these literary works. Um, there is, for example, I think so much more to be done with Whitman and disability than has been done yet. There's so much more to be done about the figure of the invalid. Um, Diane Price Herndl has her amazing work about this, but there's so much more that connects it with current um, discourses about chronic illness and the ways that that's gendered and classed um, and the power of diagnosis and what Alison Kafer calls undiagnosis. Um, so I, I, I do think that for whatever reason, um, since I started working in this, it has been a little bit more of a trickle than a flood in terms of the scholarship being done on disability in 19th century American literature, it has certainly increased greatly, like um, Sari was saying about people, you know, being at conferences doing this work. And I think that's great, uh, of course, and I'm excited by so much of the work, both by Ben and Sari's work and, and so many other people's. And yet I, I feel like I can still be in a conversation with a colleague about like, for example, about Stephen Crane's The Monster, I was recently in a conversation with a colleague uh, who really just said, why, why do we even need to talk about disability in this text? Like, like, couldn't you do a perfectly cogent reading of The Monster that doesn't mention disability? Um, and, and so I think there's, there's, there's both these exciting directions and there's an interesting and perhaps productive resistance there that I think is, is also can be the site of some interesting inquiries. So just before we wrap up, I wonder if you could say a few words about what you're working on now. Well, one thing that I'm working on now, actually, I'm going to turn the tables on our interviewer for a moment because um, uh, I had a really wonderful conversation with a young scholar named Itai Orr at MLA last year who's working on a, a fabulous project about um, kind of the intellectual origins um, and the cultural origins of what we today call neurodiversity. And um, I was just so fascinated by the way that you're putting together in your dissertation, as I understand it, um, it you know, the history of intellectual disability um, 
alongside the commitment to kind of intellectual eccentricity in the 19th century and how those things converge in key and rich texts in the 19th century is just so fascinating to me to talk to you about that. And it, it really it got me thinking about um, uh, neurodiversity as a frame for looking backward in an anachronistic frame, obviously. Um, I'm I'm uh, I I'm one piece that I'm I'm just starting to sketch out is about um, the transcendentalist movement as a neurodiverse community and also as a community of care. Um, I'm really struck by the fact that a number of the leading lights of the transcendentalist movement, Emerson, Margaret Fuller, and if you want to throw Whitman in that in that bucket, um, ha- uh, all of these powerful writers and intellectual forces, um, each of them had siblings who were intellectually disabled, who, whom they cared for um, at formative moments of their career in young adulthood, uh, giving, you know, kind of intimate care for them. And that's a story that hasn't really been told about about that group. And, you know, that we think about the transcendentalists as being committed to an ideal of self-reliance. <clears throat> but so many of these figures then moved in uh, late in their careers into the role of caregiver. Uh, Margaret Fuller and, and, and Whitman both became nurses, Fuller in the Italian Revolution, Whitman in the Civil War. And I think there is something about that experience with a – the intimate experience of caregiving for a um, disabled family member – at, at this kind of formative period of their lives that made these thinkers all in different ways um, grapple with ideas about autonomy, independence, one's obligation to others, um, the, and the ethics of care. So I'm, I'm sort of sketching out something about, about how key figures in that movement negotiated those, those, um, those uh, tensions in their own in their own writing in their lives thanks for the plug ben that's uh that is really a side of the transcendentalists we don't hear much about and i think uh, could stand to be explored further so how about you sari what are what are your next steps so uh yeah i mean i um I talked a bit about the sort of public humanity aspect of um, the work that i've been doing with um, the Perkins School for the blind um, that's that's part of a, a second book project that I've been working on that really is um, interested in thinking about some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, I mean, that project is going to examine a number of, of sort of different communities and their relationship to um, canonical works. One one aspect of that uh, that I've been working on, I'm just finishing an article about, um, about The Scarlet Letter and uh, the Perkins School for the Blind, and particularly Hawthorne's relationship to Laura Bridgman, who I mentioned earlier. And I think I think there's a kind of a secret disability history of the Scarlet Letter um, that you know once you realize that when Hawthorne was courting his uh, Sophia Hawthorne, who would become his wife, when he was courting her, she was crafting a bust of Laura Bridgman um, at Perkins. And uh, he had a very contentious, it, he, he had a very conflicted relationship um, to to the work that she was doing there. He was jealous of it. Um, but I started thinking more about 
the ways in which the the forms of raised print um, that I've been interested in more generally, actually, I started thinking about the scarlet letter as a as a raised print letter on Hester's breast, and what it might mean to think about um, the technologies that were being developed for um, blind and low vision students in terms of the Scarlet Letter, um, it started to open up for me a whole different way of reading the Scarlet Letter um, and thinking about Pearl maybe as a version of Laura Bridgman um, and what that what the kinds of forms of tactile reading that the novel is kind of interested in. Um, what they do to our readings of the Scarlet Letter. So um, that's an example of the kind of work that I'm interested in doing um, for this uh, for the second project. Very cool. How about you, Ellen? I have been working forever. I've definitely been working in crib time, uh, kind of flexible, elongated timeline on this book about conjoined twins, double meanings um, that I hope to finish soon. And that the 19th century piece of that is primarily about Millie and Christine McCoy, who, again, are these uh, African-American twins who were born in 1851. Um, I then move on in the book to look at Yvonne and Yvette MacArthur, who were born in 1949, uh, also African-American twins, and I kind of trace out these continuities of uh, enfreakment, racialization, medicalization and agency and sort of the the tension between conjoined twins who are subject to such an intense and freaking gaze and then the efforts that they take in their lives not so much to escape that gaze as to manipulate it in the ways that best serve their own agency and their own survival and I trace a lot of continuities between the 19th century and the 20th and even the 21st century which you know kind of challenges the often cited kind of timeline of infrequent where there were freak shows and then freak shows stopped and then we moved into a different period of medicalized infrequent because I really find there was a great deal of medicalized infrequent and in fact in some ways that was the enabling construct for the the traditional freak show and that today there are still very much different kinds of freak shows happening between the culture that exists on the internet and the existence of reality television and channels like TLC. And of course, other people like Rachel Adams and others have done amazing work on this that I'm building on. And then the other project I've been doing um, in my crib time way is actually about time. I'm also writing a book called Sick Time. What am I calling it? Disability, Chronicity, Futurity. And it is a combination of critical writing about temporality and disability and creative nonfiction about it. And I published a piece from this last year in Disability Studies Quarterly called Six Ways of Looking at Crip Time. Those are the two projects I'm most engaged in now and that I hope will be out in the next couple of years. Well, all of these projects sound totally fascinating. Thank you so much for for sharing them with us, uh, and I can't wait to read them. So I think that's about all the time we have. Thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts and your forthcoming work with me and with listeners. Thanks, Itai. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. A big thank you to Dan Kubis at the University of Pittsburgh Humanities Center and Max Glider at the Center for Teaching and Learning for facilitating this recording. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19podcast or get in touch with us at c19podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? 
Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.